Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Summer surge, the U.S. adds back almost one million jobs in July. Apple Watch, the tech giant says it's willing to scan photos to help tackle U.S. child abuse. And Tokyo turnaround, the IOC hails Olympic success as the Games draw to a close. It's Friday, let's make a move. Once again, to first move, great to have you with us on another Jobs Friday here in the United States of America. And I can tell you, it was a healthy one. The U.S. adding back a stronger than expected 943,000 jobs last month. It was driven by gains in sectors like leisure and hospitality, as well as education. We also say wage growth are posting a nice positive jump, too. Once again, however, context, though, is everything. U.S. payroll still down by some 5.7 million jobs since the pandemic began. We still have 8.7 million Americans that remain out of work. The increasing number of firms delaying a return to offices could also pressure jobs growth going forward, too. There's plenty of uncertainty as we head into the winter months. That said, today's numbers are so strong that it could give the Fed at least some of the ammunition it needs to begin slowly pulling back on stimulus. Much more on the discussion on that throughout today's show. In the meantime, U.S. stocks set for a mostly lower open following the report. They also jumping ahead and thinking about what the Fed will do too. the S&P and the Nasdaq beginning today's session at record levels. Europe mostly higher too, but it's also not all about jobs. Lots going on in the Asia session as well and a mostly lower end to the week. As you can see, they're just the Japanese Nikkei managing to eke out gains. China, the word though, Chinese telecom giant Huawei reporting its biggest ever quarterly sales drop as U.S. sanctions continue to bite. Beijing's tech crackdown seemingly not over yet, too. Reports say China could impose a $1 billion equivalent antitrust fine on its food delivery giant, Meituan. A busy Friday indeed. Let's focus and get more on that jobs report to begin. Claire Sebastian joins me now. Claire, not only did we see 943,000 jobs added back for the month of July, but I was looking at the revisions, an extra 100,000 jobs added back in the prior two months that we weren't expecting. This is a solid release. This is a very good jobs report, Julia. Really, whichever way you look at it, this is something that many of us have been waiting for after some disappointments in the spring, combined with those revisions. Also, uh, extremely good news. And if you dig into those numbers, you can see where the jobs are coming from. About 40% of them came from leisure and hospitality. We know that was the most beaten down sector during the pandemic, those immediate layoffs. It looks like slowly, slowly those jobs uh, are starting to come back. Another almost a quarter uh, of that jobs number came from local government education. This is slightly distorted by COVID. We haven't seen the usual seasonal pattern of layoffs, which was why they were seeing uh, this unusual number of jobs for this time of year being added. So so a slight idiosyncrasy there. Uh, But overall, you know, excellent number. I want to dig into wages, though, because this does to some degree, as you mentioned, put pressure on the Fed, not only because of the strong number, we know that Jerome Powell was looking for a string, as he put it, of good jobs numbers, but because of the wages. If you look, we saw a surge in the spring. We're now seeing uh, several more pretty strong numbers in terms of uh, the amount by which wages are going up. This is inflationary and crucially, Julia, it may not be transitory. So that is something that the Fed is going to be watching very closely. 
Yeah, that is such an important point. And we know anecdotally as well that a lot of particularly small businesses are having to pay people more and more money to try and get them in the door. And even anecdotally, I speak to restaurants near where I live and they say they can get people in the door and then they just walk off the job mid-serving. And then they go and walk three doors down the street and they get another job in another restaurant for slightly more money. So these challenges are all going to feed in. There is good news today. There are also challenges, and I mentioned it too. Um, We've still got 8.7 million people unemployed, and that's of the people we're counting. There are people that are simply not counted in these numbers because they're not looking for a job. Still down just shy of 6 million jobs since the pandemic began. And we've got a few wild cards here. We've got the variant covid what impacts that going to have as those cases ramp up? We've got whether or not children go back to school in the summer. There's lots of things here that will dictate to what extent the labour market has changed or not. And we've got to wait a few more months for that. We do. And I think, you know, while this was a crucially important jobs report, and again, we're looking for that string of strong months uh, for the Fed to, to potentially act. It's also really important to note that, that this was carried out, the survey for these jobs numbers was carried out earlier in the month. And we've really seen the true impact or, or the start of the impact uh, of what the Delta variant could do to, to society, to the reopening happening in the last week or so. So really, we're looking to, to August and September, perhaps even October to see whether this could impact, whether people postponing return to work to work could, could impact the jobs number, whether hiring could stall because of this. And I think another point to make when we look at how the Fed might respond to this is the participation rate. They've seen, they, the, you know, Jerome Powell is crucially focused on this. He wants to see it go up. It, it really has stayed within the same range that we've seen since the pandemic hit. It was 61.7% uh, this month. So I think that might hold back the Fed action as well, Julia. This is such a great point. A 45-year low in the participation rate and it's barely budging, quite frankly. And that's why we saw the unemployment rate come down so quickly, because we're not bringing those people off the sidelines. A fantastic point, Claire. Stay where you are, because we're going to talk about another story that we both feel very strongly about in a few moments' time. For now, though, as we just discussed, the COVID impact on jobs in the United States. Well, parts of the Asia-Pacific are being hit hard by the Delta variant to China, reporting its highest daily COVID-19 cases in the current outbreak with 124 new infections. The relative numbers here are quite fascinating. But also some of Australia's biggest cities entering a strict lockdown as the Delta variant spreads there too. As Christy Lustout reports. Lockdowns are now in force in Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane, Australia's three largest cities. More than 60 percent of the country's population must now stay at home. Now, the state of Victoria is now in its sixth lockdown since the pandemic began, and that triggered an angry anti-lockdown rally in the state capital of Melbourne. The worst affected city is Sydney. Today, New South Wales reported 291 new locally acquired cases of the virus. That is the highest daily tally on record. Australia was once a pandemic success story. So how did it come to this? Well, here's Catherine Bennett. She's a chair of epidemiology at Deakin University. He spoke to us from lockdown in Melbourne. The methods we'd used so successfully to keep returning to COVID zero in Australia while we were trying to roll out our vaccine program have now been defeated by this variant. It just moves too quickly for that normal test, trace, isolate approach to actually be effective. Even with the lockdowns in place, like in Sydney, we've still just seen the case numbers roll on because we can't completely get ahead of the virus to close those outbreaks down. 
Experts say there are two main factors behind the Delta surge, uh, the highly contagious nature of the Delta variant. Uh, Bennett describes the Delta variant as slippery, having the ability to evade and move past once proven pandemic controls and a slow vaccination drive. Australia's chief medical officer, Paul Kelly, says the Delta outbreak has created a, quote, pandemic of the unvaccinated. Only about 21 percent of Australians above 16 are fully inoculated. But the pace is picking up. 1.2 million doses have been administered in the last seven days. Christy Lustout, CNN, Hong Kong. Okay, let's move on. Apple says it will begin checking for child abuse images on iCloud and on iPhones. User photos will be given a unique code and then compared to a database of abuse images. Any match will be reported to the authorities. Claire Sebastian is back with us. Claire, clearly a very contentious subject for some, an emotional subject for others. But for Apple itself, a company that I think has tried to differentiate itself in terms of privacy, push back on authorities when they've asked for access to phones of suspected terrorists, for example. This feels like a monumental step. Yes. And look, this is a very divisive issue today. You can certainly see both sides of the argument. And clearly, this is something that given the way Apple has positioned itself, certainly in the last few years, when we've seen all those privacy concerns come out uh, around the likes of Facebook, they've really positioned themselves as the opposite of that. That's been a unique selling point of the company, all sorts of sort of encryption and privacy built into their their services uh, and products. And they're doing a couple of things here. One is the, the photo scanning tool that you mentioned. They're going to be able to scan through people's uh, photos on their phones and on iCloud. They say they're not looking at the actual photos. They're looking at a sort of set of unreadable hashes, which they're then going to match against a a national database for for child sexual abuse uh, images and material online. And that way they'll be able to to root out this content. And there's a second feature as well where they'll be able to to look at at, at image attachments in iMessage accounts belonging to children. Uh, This is particularly interesting because they will blur those images. They say they'll warn the child who owns the account that they don't have to open it if they do open it. And equally, if the child sends an image like that, the parents will be notified. This is something that the parents have to switch on. This will be available in a future software update. But as I mentioned, Julia, clearly it's very divisive. A lot of heat they're taking this morning from privacy experts. Here's a tweet from the Electronic Frontier Foundation. They say Apple's filtering of iMessage and iCloud is not a slippery slope to back doors that suppress speech uh, and make our communications less secure. They say we're already there. This is a fully built system just waiting for external pressure to make the slightest change. This is the big concern that while Apple may have the right intentions, this opens the door to perhaps an erosion of people's privacy. Yeah, it's fascinating, isn't it? I mean, obviously, child protection groups are applauding this move. I think the the sort of broader fear here for security uh, experts as well is what happens if a, a government, for example, says, hey, Apple, here's a whole bunch of images. We want you to scan them. And maybe Apple says no, but their technology doesn't. It's in place there. And it, I guess it does open them up to some degree of abuse. You know, I think there's two Pressure. sort of major, yeah, there's two major concerns here. One is that, that Apple could get it wrong, right? That, that, that these images could be could be scanned and something harmless, like perhaps someone's photo of their child in the bathtub could, could end up being flagged and, and the authorities all alerted. That certainly is something that people will be concerned about, although clearly, you know, Apple has a, a very strong history of, of software development and should be able to, to get this right. And the second concern is that even if Apple gets it right, 
it could fall into the wrong hands that the Pandora's box has been opened. So this is why you're seeing so much concern this morning. But as I said, Julia, it's not, it's not, it's not happening yet on people's phones. It's going to be available with a future software update. And it will be something that certainly in the case of the, the iMessage tool that people actually have to actively turn on so parents can, can sort of help police their, their children online. Yes, opt in and opt out. Claire Sebastian, thank you so much for that. And I was wondering whether you were going to do a Superwoman-style uh, outfit change in the one minute 30 that I gave you there to switch between stories, but you didn't, but you are my superwoman of the day as a result. And always, of course, have a great weekend. Thank you. Okay, let me bring you up to speed with some of the other stories making headlines around the world. Hezbollah says it fired rockets from Lebanon into Israeli-controlled territory. It says the rockets were fired into open land in response to Israeli airstrikes on Thursday. No casualties were reported. Israel says it intercepted most of them and fired back, but insisted it is not looking for war. Our Ben Weinman is live in Beirut with more. Ben, what can you tell us about the importance of the timing in terms of what we've seen here and the escalation of violence between these two nations? Because it does feel what we've seen in the region with a new president in Iran also factors highly. Now, the, the timing is somewhat puzzling if you look at it only within the context of Lebanon, a country where just day before yesterday we marked the first anniversary of the Beirut port blast, a country which, according to the UN, uh, where 78 percent of the population now lives in poverty, uh, this is not exactly the most opportune time uh, for war. And what's interesting is that both Israel and Hezbollah are clearly they want to fire. They want to show that they have the ability uh, to fire back. But both sides seem to be aiming at open land. Uh, so I think both sides are avoiding what could become an open sort of open ended conflict. And if you look at the broader context of uh, these uh, attacks on oil tankers in the Gulf of Oman and elsewhere, this shadow war that's going on between Israel and Iran, it does appear that uh, Hezbollah, which of course is affiliated and supported by Iran, is also being used to remind Israel that it has the ability uh, to open another front in this shadow war between uh, Israel and Iran. And therefore, we need to put it in that context rather than the context of Lebanon, uh, where nobody can afford war. And what's interesting, one incident that happened today is that a truck full with a, with a rocket launcher in it was driving back after Hezbollah had said it was driving back after firing uh, rockets. It was stopped by villagers in a Druze village and uh, the villagers attacked the Hezbollah members who were in the vehicle and the army had to intervene. They detained four Hezbollah members, commandeered the rocket launchers. This is something we have not seen before and it certainly is an indicator that many Lebanese, the last thing they want at this point is a war with Israel. Yeah, the last Julia. thing they need. Ben Weedman in Beirut, thank you so much for that this morning and uh, for your context, all important too. The Taliban are claiming responsibility for the assassination of the Afghan government's top media and information officer. U.S. and EU diplomats are condemning the attack, saying they are, quote, shocked and appalled. The Islamic group is trying to weaken President Ghani's administration, which is backed by the West. 
In Greece, at least 20 people have been hospitalized as wildfires continue to burn. On the outskirts of Athens, more than 400 firefighters are struggling to contain flames driven by strong winds. Many people in the area have been evacuated and several homes have been destroyed. Okay, still to come here on First Move, Delta doubts Expedia warns of travel's bumpy road to recovery. We've got the CEO who'll join us later and e-commerce enthusiasm shares of Bukla Pak surge on its first day of trade as investors v for a slice of Indonesia's online and offline market. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. The Olympic Games are winding down in Tokyo. The economic action just gearing up here in the United States and the U.S. jobs market truly earning a gold medal last month. 943,000 jobs added back for the month of July. That's well above estimates. Nice upward revisions to May and June as well, adding back around 100,000 jobs that we weren't anticipating. Average hourly earnings rising by almost half a percent to 0.4% the rise there. The big question is whether these numbers are strong enough to at least allow the Fed to begin gingerly taping stimulus. After all, major COVID challenges remain. United has become the first U.S. airline to require all U.S.-based workers to get vaccinated for COVID, also likely to have an impact on what we see in terms of the economy going forward, this kind of move. For context, joining us now, Mike Veroli, Chief U.S. Economist at J.P. Morgan. Mike, fantastic to have you on the show. You are very much in line with your forecast for these numbers. What do you make of what we saw? I think it was a good number all around. Mm. Uh, not only, as you mentioned, almost a million jobs added, Uh, in July and in June, Uh, but a nice big move down in the unemployment rate from 5.9% to 5.4%. There are still challenges to be sure. We're still almost 6 million jobs short of where we were uh, in February of 2020. Uh, The labor force participation rate, the number of people uh, with a job are looking for work, still remains somewhat elevated, uh, I'm sorry, somewhat depressed. Uh, So there's still some work to go, but Certainly the progress we've seen uh, recently has been pretty encouraging overall. I mean, I would mention the point about the participation rate because generally that takes some of the shine off the change in the unemployment rate when we see a number like this because you bring people off the sidelines, but but we're not seeing that. To what extent do you think when we get to sort of the back end of the summer into the fall here in the United States and the final states that haven't removed the bump up in unemployment benefits, perhaps children go back to school, that, that we see people more coming off the sidelines and perhaps we add yet more jobs. Yeah, I think that's really one of the biggest questions right now about the labor market is how much uh, those expanded unemployment benefits are affecting uh, labor supply. Uh, You know, it's a a big question, but we should find out one way or another pretty soon because nationally those are all all set to expire in early September. So we would think as we get to October, November, we will have a, uh, a cleaner picture of the labor market. Some of these issues on participation, though, may be Uh, broader than that. We've seen a pickup in retirements. Uh, So there may be some structural changes here that uh, suggest that perhaps we're not going to get back to the participation rates that we saw in 2019. I think, as you mentioned, for the Fed, that's going to be one of the areas they're watching because they want this broad-based and inclusive measure of full employment to be attained. Uh, But there are a lot of unknowns about what that actually means, including what the normal level of participation is. So Uh, So there are distortions that will fade uh, shortly, but there are also some, uh, I think, deeper questions that are going to remain for perhaps 
several months uh, or quarters even. You raise a great point, and the Fed could be waiting a long time if they want this broad-based recovery in the jobs market. And to your point, perhaps things have changed. We've seen an acceleration in digitization. People have learned to work with other things and work with less, perhaps, in certain cases. The structure of the jobs market may have changed. How long is the Fed willing to wait, in your mind, to get the data that it wants or not get the data that it wants in the face of some of the other pressures that we're seeing, wage pressures, for example, cost pressures with the supply bottlenecks out there that that remain. Sure. I think the evidence over the past week or two is that the Fed may be a little less patient than we had thought uh, uh, up until recently. Uh, We've had some indications from some key Fed policymakers that they are uh, intending to perhaps step off uh, the accelerator a little bit here as we uh, uh, later this year and slow down the pace at which they're buying bonds. Uh, and there's even some indication they could be considering uh, raising short-term interest rates as early as late next year, which is a pretty big shift from where we or where they were signaling even just a few months ago. So, uh, so I think they are observing the improvement in the labor market, but they also are seeing some of the cost pressures that you mentioned. And they may be getting a little bit uncomfortable uh, with keeping rates at zero for you know, a very long time, just given uh, both the wage and the price uh, increases we've seen. So there may be a little bit of a a change uh, going on in the the Fed's thinking. Certainly that seems to be the evidence over the past few weeks. You know, you listen to what companies are saying during earnings season, and they're all talking about rising costs. They're all talking about price pressures. They're talking about labor challenges. Where do you go and how quickly do you go from that where you see them forced to raise wages. They pass on the extra costs to the consumer. The consumer then says, hang on a second, I feel a little bit poorer. I'm going to demand higher wages. And you end up in that sort of cycle where each thing self-reinforces. I mean, that in the kind of face of the situation that we're in now, perhaps with the Delta variant slowing growth to Mm -hmm. some degree as we pass into the fall, I guess I I use the word carefully, but I do use the word stagflation. Um, And I think we'll see it talked about more and more. Am I way off? No. Well, I think you highlight the, the main concern here, which is if expectations for inflation were right. to build in, in wage-setting demands and things of that nature, that would be a really pernicious development. And that is one reason why we and, and the Fed are watching very closely uh, inflation expectations. So what people, what investors, what uh, customers are expecting inflation to be in the longer run after we get past you know, these short-run disruptions. So far, we haven't seen evidence uh, or really convincing evidence that people, people's inflation expectations are moving up the way they did in the 60s and 70s. And that's one reason I think the Fed, while they may be moving a little bit more toward eventually hiking rates, they're, not in a, <laughs> they're still not in a big rush and they're still not overly worried about, uh, about that, um, uh, that wage price you know, development uh, spiral happening. Uh, on the Delta variant, I do think this is you know, certainly worth watching. So far, uh, there hasn't been big evidence that it is affecting um, activity, uh, certainly nowhere near like what we saw with the second wave over last winter. Uh, but it is something we're watching, of course. Uh, as I said, the evidence um, uh, you know, is pretty, pretty limited, and, and certainly we and other economists have been over the past year and a half really paying a lot more attention to these daily uh, things like you know, restaurant reservations and and flight bookings and things of this nature. Not a big effect so far, but uh, certainly a risk. But I think, you know, it is interesting. Uh, Growth should be slowing as we go into the winter months, as, you know, most of the reopening will be behind us. Uh, Most of the fiscal stimulus will have been spent. 
Uh, and that will be another reason why once we get into the fall and the winter, the data become a little more, I guess you could say believable because we're getting closer to normal times. And then we'll see what kind of uh, inflation backdrop uh, arises after we get back to more normal uh, growth, uh, growth uh, developments. I have to say, I don't envy anyone who has to forecast anything, quite frankly, in these markets. I've called it a pandemic puzzle and I'll continue to, to do it. Um, Mike, thank you for your wisdom sure. on the show today. Mike Brewer, Chief U.S. Economist at J.P. Morgan. Have a great weekend. Thank you. OK, after the break, the CEO of Expedia Group is here and we're talking travel and a tie up with UNICEF to help boost vaccinations in other countries. That's next. Stay with us. From the Delta variant to returning to work and school, there are unknowns across the board for the U.S. economy and beyond, in particular for the travel sector. And that's a key takeaway from Expedia's earnings. While second quarter revenues rocketed more than 270 percent compared to a year ago, the level of growth going forward is by no means certain. Expedia, which owns brands like Hotels.com, Travelocity and Cheap Tickets, is also working to improve global vaccination rates. And we'll come to that in just a moment. But first... Let's talk about the numbers. Peter Kern is CEO of Expedia Group, and he joins us now. Peter, fantastic to have you on the show. You're clearly seeing an improving picture. I think that's the message. But there is a stark contrast with the challenges and some of the pickup, I think, that you've seen in the domestic business in the United States versus the international picture. Just talk us through what you're seeing. Yeah, thank you, Julia, for having me. I I think um, what we're seeing is kind of what everyone expects and is experiencing themselves, which is, Initially, people were comfortable traveling domestically, driving to places, um, moving within the country. There were limits about where they could go. Then as things opened up, they began to fly more. They began to travel further. But on an international basis, it's still fairly limited. And for a lot of the world, uh, borders are still essentially closed or they're opening only for vaccinated people or only in certain circumstances. So we've seen it expanding. But international is still, as you mentioned, dragging compared to domestic. And um, we expect that to pick up, but obviously every time there's something like Delta or something that comes along, you create new uncertainties. Some countries will react more aggressively as Australia has, whereas others are continuing to open and, and are still you know, working towards more open borders, and, and that, that's encouraging. So there's some puts and takes, but I think broadly we're going in the right direction. It's just not a straight line. I know. And how long does it take? Because obviously you haven't provided guidance because there is, and we all see it, as you point out, so much uncertainty. Are you seeing a sort of pickup in cancellations and adjustments given the pickup in COVID cases that we're seeing wherever you look in the world, really? Yeah, I would say the market is pretty reactive to the news cycle. Mm -hmm. So when things get a little scarier, you know, you're going to have some people who decide there's risk and decide they're not comfortable entirely with that risk. But there's a big swath of the population across the globe that that has gotten comfortable with COVID, is vaccinated uh, and is you know more willing to move around. So I think we, we see it on the edges. It's not these big swings like we had earlier in COVID where there were no vaccines and, um, and, and much less of the population was vaccinated. These are smaller swings, but you definitely see it start to percolate through uh, when you get a bad news cycle or you get an increased caseload. Uh, and, and places start to change rules and start to suggest masks and other things that changes people's desire to, to go to a certain place. So uh, all those things have impact, but it's pretty much as you would expect. It's it's really uh, pretty closely tied to what's happening in the news and what people are seeing. 
And also, and we talked about this last time you were on the show, and it does fascinate me, the strength that you see in the vacation home rental market. Mm. Um, Verbo, of course, is the business. And you launched Fast Start earlier this year, which was allowing people who've got ratings on Airbnb to transfer them over to your business, which sort of gives them a kickstart rather than starting out fresh. Talk to me about the kind of activity that you're seeing there and sort of how much that helped generate actual bookings and business, because that seemed pretty smart to me. Yeah, thank you. Uh, we, we were very pleased with that program, and it was very successful. Uh, in general, our, our uh, homeowners and people who are on our Verbo platform make more than they do on any other uh, vacation rental platform. We're, we're very productive for them. And so we're trying to make sure that when someone new comes on, especially in this time uh, where things have been compressed, where in the places people want to go, there haven't really been enough homes we're trying to make sure everybody gets on the platform and performs well from the beginning, uh, which has been a very successful program. But clearly, vacation rental has been a, a, a really interesting use case for travelers, especially those who think they want to get away, but they're not sure how comfortable they are being at a hotel or being, uh, you know, sort of blending into broader society. Now, that's been changing considerably over the summer as people have gotten much more comfortable with conventional lodging, going to a hotel or a resort, et cetera. But, um, but people still love vacation rentals. If you've ever done them, they're a great experience. And I think uh, this has given us a chance to give more people exposure to that experience, which I, I believe will be great for us long term as now people think about vacation rentals more often than they used to. Yeah, absolutely. And um, speaking of smart moves and another smart move, and it's helping, I think, promote the app and get people booking on the app. Um, you're also pushing good causes and something incredibly human, which is trying to making donations as a result of bookings on the app to UNICEF to try and get people around the world that are struggling to get access to vaccines, that access. And on that note, I want to bring in uh, Michael J. Neinheis. He's president and CEO of UNICEF USA. Gentlemen, great to have you both on the show talking about this because it's such a vital issue. Um, Michael, to you first, just explain the importance of a company like Expedia making a move like this and, and promoting and pushing financial help to get vaccines to people. Just how vital is this? Yeah, th thanks for having me on, Julia. Yeah, and uh, we're so excited about what Peter and his company are doing. You know, one of the benefits, two maybe uh, main benefits for us, one, there's resources coming from the company to us to help uh, with this incredibly important global effort that UNICEF is undertaking to, to really vaccinate the globe. Uh, but maybe even more than that, the the reach that a brand, you know, really excellent brand like Expedia has to uh, uh, to their uh, customer base to raise awareness about why this is so important that we continue to to move forward with this global vaccine campaign you know none of us are safe until all of us are safe we have to get vaccines to the entire world to beat this pandemic and it's companies like expedia that are going to help us do it and peter come in here because it's an important cause it also makes smart business sense i mean some of the facts here introduction of the vaccine could help prevent the loss of 375 billion dollars to the global economy every month and for your business the sooner we get the world vaccinated quite frankly uh, the sooner everybody recovers and everybody's better from a health perspective from a business perspective from a life perspective we should all be looking at this and, and focusing on this as individuals and as businesses yeah, I think you said it beautifully there. Uh, you know, we believe that it's uh, the right thing to do, that none of us are safe until the world is is really safe. And I was part of a, a World Economic Forum panel where I heard the president, former president of Liberia talk about how only one in 500 people in the developing world were vaccinated. And it really brings home this idea 
that, you know, we might all be in our little bubble where we fight about vaccines or whatever, but at least we have access uh, in the U.S., certainly. Uh, but for a lot of the world, access isn't even there. And until we really make a dent in this, I think it's foolhardy to believe we're, we're going to get past uh, and, and learn to live with COVID. So for us, it's really about helping people. It's what our employees believe in. It's what we think our customers believe in. And it's really about, um, and, it, and it's perfectly aligned with our goals as a company, which is we want people to be able to travel and come together across the world. And so it was the perfect alignment for us. Um, we, we did it on the app because we think the app's the best experience for customers. We want our customers to be there. And we think we can do great things to support UNICEF. And frankly, I hope other companies feel compelled to do it. Uh, you know, there's lots of companies who have actually benefited during COVID rather than companies like ours who have gotten hurt by COVID. And I'd love to see them all participate in doing something broader across the world. You made that point, and it's $2, I believe, per booking. And um, I was going to make the point, actually, if you didn't. There are companies that have benefited. Admittedly, many of them are helping. They're providing support, financial support, too. But I like what you're doing here. And, and also the fact that, as, as Michael said, this raises awareness as well. Michael, another statistic that I think is vitally important for my audience to understand, it's an estimate, but for every dollar invested in vaccines in the world's 94 lowest income countries, $16 is expected to be saved in healthcare costs, lost wages and lost productivity. I mean, that number gave me goosebumps. This makes so much sense for so many reasons. We need to be doing more to support these other nations. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we know, uh, you know, from from years and years of working uh, in vaccines, that vaccines are the most powerful public health tool that we have. And that's true with the childhood vaccines that, that UNICEF does every year, year in and year out to nearly half the world's under five children. You know, that's core part of our work. We know the power of vaccines uh, to deal with with health issues. And that's it's no different with COVID. In fact, it's critically important and urgent. It's the key way we're going to end this pandemic is to make vaccines available in an equitable way across the entire globe. So we're thrilled to have corporate partners in particular that are helping with us. It's, it's an all hands on deck effort. We need corporate partners, foundations, individuals, everybody to stand up and help us do this. Yeah, everybody needs to stand up. And I know um, you're hoping a minimum donation here, Peter, of, of $10 million. Oh, wow. If more companies could come together and do this, it would make a huge difference. And I also think not only from a, a business perspective, but also, and I talk about this a lot on my show for the G7 nations, they have given a lot of money. More is required in order to do this. It's sort of business also flying the flag, I think, to push governments to do more too. As much as they're fighting their own battles, this is one battle we're in. Yes, I, I totally agree. And one thing that brought it home for me was that, uh, you know, the Western uh, governments have committed a billion vaccines this year and two billion next year. And as, uh, again, this former president of Liberia reminded us all, uh, that's only going to vaccinate about a third of the world's population. So even though these sound like big numbers and it's great that our governments are doing something to help, uh, we have a long, long way to go. And, um, and, and you know, with COVID as a virus, with variants, you know, it's not going to go away until we really, really make a broad dent in this across the globe. So I think, uh, you know, we're all aligned in this. I hope every company, every person who can, you know, gives and helps. I think sometimes we lose track of everything outside our borders because we're just trying to get to a, a more stable state ourselves. But uh, this is a global problem and we all have to help if we can. 
Yeah, and in some nations we're talking about third doses when less than 1% of those in the low-income economies have had access to even one dose. Um, gentlemen, thank you so much for coming on the show. Such an important topic to discuss, and um, I'm grateful to you both for your time. Michael J. Ninehouse there, President and CEO of UNICEF USA, and Peter Kern, CEO of Expedia Group. Both, thank you so much for your time today. All right, up next, shares of Buklapak start trading after Indonesia's biggest ever IPO and investors, well, they can't get enough. We speak to the president of the group coming right up. Welcome back to First Move and a pretty good start for the U.S. majors in the early price action this Friday. The S&P 500 trading at fresh records. Tech, though, a little bit softer after today's stronger than expected jump in U.S. employment numbers. Almost 950,000 jobs were created last month and extra 100,000 added back to the prior two months. It's the strongest employment gain since this time last year when it was driven by hiring in places like restaurants and bars, as well as in the education sector, too. Okay, let's move on and we'll head to Indonesia, scene of the latest tech IPO frenzy. Buklapak, which operates a major online and offline marketplace, went public earlier this Friday in the country's biggest ever listing. It was founded 11 years ago to help mom and pop stores sell online and beyond. It's the fourth largest e-commerce player in the country. Business surged during the pandemic as e-commerce moved online. Joining us is Teddy Otomo. He's president of Buklapak and he joins us now. Teddy, fantastic to have you with us and congratulations on the listing. A huge first for Indonesia, never mind anything else. And I know you were hired as CEO just before the pandemic. So, oh boy, you've had a busy 18 months. How does this moment feel? Yeah, um, thank you for having me, Julia. Um, I think, you know, I must say that I'm very proud, proud not so much about just having the IPO done, but I think I'm, I'm really proud of the fact that the whole company got together. You know, it's a testament of the strong uh, collaboration within the company as overall, a uh, strong testament to the focus and commitment of the employee present and past, right? So I think this is something that we're a very proud moment for all of us. And explain to our audience who may be confused what Buklapak actually does, because you do have some stiff competition that we have spoken to on this show in Indonesia. What differentiates you and makes you special? Yeah, so I think a lot of people, you know, if you looked at uh, Indonesia with 270 million population, in reality, only 30 to 40 million people live in the tier one cities, which is the Jakarta, Surabaya, Bandung, Medan, Semarang, like the big cities, right? 200. Uh, 30 million people are scattered across the country. And and the problem is that a lot of this mass market Indonesian, um, they do have relatively lower financial inclusion. They don't have credit cards. They don't have digital banking. What we have done is we kind of combine both online and offline. So on top of the marketplace, which just practically one of our channel, we are connected to 7 million mom and pop kiosks across Indonesia, enabling people who wants to transact on the online. And we also infuse a vast amount of capability to this mom and pop kiosks and we grow the business, right? So they started off from, for example, traditional convenience store and we enable a bunch of additional capability. They transform them into, you know, selling bus ticket, train ticket. They can be logistic agents. Um, they can be remittance agents. So practically they kind of transform from just normal mom and pop traditional convenience store to basic bank branch to uh, travel agent. And that enhanced their revenue and allowed them practically to be our extended hand to reach out 
to this mass of 230 million population across the whole Indonesia and nationwide. Yeah, so I mean, at the moment, I believe you have around 105 million registered users. Is the ambition going forward, and this sort of ties to the decision to go public now and raise, what, some one and a half billion dollars, is the ambition to be a super app to provide the access and the opportunities that you've said to these mom and pop businesses, but also perhaps financial tools? Because we hear that a lot again on this show. You're a tech company, you're growing, you have big audience, consumer use, and then you expand to other products. Is that the ambition? Well, I don't think it's about uh, extend to the other product. I think our philosophy is very simple. We're looking at things probably not so much about just going out there and acquire buyers, which is the typical playbook that you see in the Southeast Asia tech, right? <laughs> Our method is more looking at the merchant, looking at this mom and pop kiosk, looking at this online merchant and how we can grow their business. So, you know, for, for example, the offline store, they started from traditional convenience store. We infuse that additional capability um, including financials within that, right. right? So that they can grow their business. And, and on average, this mom and pop store, after connecting to us, the revenue went up three times. Not so much because right. they're selling three times more shampoo or three times more milk and all that, right? But because they started off from selling, you know, um, instant noodles and snacks and all, all, all those basic FMCG. Now, on top of that, they can sell the bus ticket, train ticket, gold investment, remittance, um, <laughs> phone credits, electricity uh, uh, token, right? So that added a lot of their revenue. Likewise, on the marketplace seller, we're enabling them to go multi-channels. We're enabling them to, to be able to sell. Practically, the focus is how we can help the MSME to sell more volume, more product, and therefore, as they grow and do better, obviously, our business model is commission-based, and so you know, we'll do better as well. Yeah, when they make more money and have better margins on the products that they're selling, you also make more money. Now, speaking of that, you do exactly. have some pretty huge investors, China's Ant Group, Microsoft, Singapore's Sovereign Wealth and GIC. So they clearly saw the potential in what you're doing. But then I look at the numbers and your losses are big. In fact, they sort of pretty similar size to your revenues. And I appreciate that you're in growth phase, that you're investing in the business. And this is important, but you all are also a numbers guy. And I wonder whether you were sort of chosen because you're the guy that can innovate, but also keep people on the straight and narrow and present a path to profitability. Any timing no, on when you may get to zero losses? Yeah, I think this is a very dynamic industry, and I think everybody will say it's investing in, in the growth and what's not. But if you really looked at our number, right, um, not only that we sustain the growth on our paid GMV or TPV at, at 50% CAGR plus, right, what we have done is we have increased the monetization, and we have been reducing our costs. Our sales and marketing costs has been going down, not just in ratio, but also in absolute term. And that's on the back of still staging 50 plus percent growth, right? So if you looked at in terms of our cash burn, it has declined significantly over the, the last two, three years. And as a result, we are actually, we, I believe at least, we are on plan, um, hopefully to reach that, that uh, profitable uh, level, um, hopefully in less than 36 months at most. Aha, 36 months. Fantastic. I'll write that down. Teddy, you and I will reconvene, no doubt, many times before that 36 month is up, but we'll continue the conversation Great to have you on the show. Congratulations to you and to your people. It's been 10 years, I know, of work for all of them, but um, what a fantastic day and a great performance on the stock market day one, too. Teddy, we'll speak again soon. Teddy Otomo there, president great. of Bukla Pak. Thank you. Great Jessica. to chat to you. Bye.
Okay, after the break, for all the controversy surrounding the Olympic Games, simple acts of human kindness have emerged, which mean we could remembering Tokyo 2020 as the gracious games. Plenty of examples to warm the heart next. Welcome back to the show. The Tokyo Games have seen intense competition, but they will be remembered for feats of sportsmanship and kindness. From the sharing of gold medals to runners helping fallen rivals back to their feet, Will Ripley has this take on the feel-good games. The legacy of Tokyo 2020 may not be measured in medals or COVID cases, but acts of kindness, moments of grace, Olympians choosing humility over hubris. American gymnast Simone Biles cheering on her teammates even as she was struggling to compete. American swimmer Annie Laser hugging her South African competitor Tatiana Schoenmacher who broke a world record to win gold. To have someone right next to me break a world record, um, just as a fan of the sport in general, that's something that's pretty amazing to happen to you. Given that there were no spectators and you were in this bubble in the middle of a, of a pandemic, did, do you think that brought the athletes closer, this, this experience? Definitely more of a sense of, um, we're just really happy that this is happening, really happy to be here. Happiness written on the faces of the first ever Olympic skateboarders. Skateboarding is one big family. Probably getting on the podium with two of my best, like two of one of my favorite people is like, Awesome. I think, that, you know, we're seeing that camaraderie between athletes now. There's always something good that comes from something bad. And I think this is part of what the pandemic has done is it's created a better community uh, of athletes that are supporting each other under very difficult conditions in Tokyo. To, to be supporting each other uh, is huge. Support spanning across continents and badminton courts. When Denmark dethroned China to win gold in the men's singles, the players traded shirts as a symbol of respect. These Qatari and Italian high jumpers, friends and competitors for years, opted out of a jump off, deciding to share the gold. It was just amazing and sharing with a friend is even more beautiful. Thank you. There were high fives and helping hands. After falling during the 800 meter, these runners from the US and Botswana finished the race arm in arm a legacy of kindness and camaraderie, outshining even the Olympic flame. Will Ripley, CNN, Tokyo. The flame of kindness burning bright. That's it for the show. Stay safe, have a great weekend. Connect the World with Becky Anderson is next, and I'll see you on Monday. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 
and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.